Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. Extreme heat can leave us feeling exhausted after doing the most basic activities like getting groceries or commuting to work. I don't know about you, but I've certainly felt it. Low air quality can also leave many with sore throats and runny eyes. So naturally, guess who got a sore throat and runny eyes from the recent wildfire smoke? Definitely me. And researchers say the health effects can be much more dire, including worsening respiratory and cardiac health. Today, we explore the real health impacts of climate change and how you should prepare. We'll also talk about how it's not just limited to physical health. The mental health stress climate change has on us can be just as distressing. And now joining us to help us understand how all of that impacts us beyond the environment is Anne Hulick. She's the Connecticut Director for the Clean Water Action and Clean Water Fund. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Anne, that was quite the buildup to our first question for you, which is, how are we already seeing climate change impact our health? Well, uh, there's so many um, instances over the past few years where climate change has had a big impact on Connecticut residents' health, not only with um, days where we have poor air quality with uh, ground level ozone and um, particulate matter, um, the recent wildfires up in Canada certainly um, impacted people's respiratory conditions. And as you pointed out, extreme heat, which researchers say that we should expect to have more of in the upcoming years, takes a real toll on all of us with our activities of daily living, but also particularly for vulnerable populations, children, the elderly, and those with other pre-existing conditions. So um, all of those issues can impact not only acute respiratory impacts, but also chronic respiratory disease and also cardiac disease. Uh, So it is a real concern. And I think we've had a very real example recently, which is like you mentioned, we had a lot of smoke and smog days uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, How have you seen that impact health already? Well, we know that um, the particulate matter from wildfire smoke is incredibly dangerous. And it was pretty alarming to experience that here in the Northeast. We know colleagues out in the West, um, you know, are more used to that, but uh, it was very frightening. And also, as you pointed out, many of us felt uh, sore throats, scratchy throats, runny eyes, Um, maybe a little short of breath, and uh, reports suggest that we may be experiencing wildfires 
more in, in the northern northeastern part of the country and up in Canada that will continue to impact uh, those of us in Connecticut. So it is a real concern. Well, and I, I like that you mentioned the West because I'm originally from California and speaking of smoke and smog, being from L.A. too, it's something that I'm used to. So certainly coming here, not what I was expecting. And here in the state and across our region as well, we're also starting to see a lot more flash flooding. And like you mentioned just now, the residue from the wildfires, these events can also be traumatic and very dangerous for for people. So, so is you know, these are just really live examples that we are all experiencing recently. And what are the impacts do you think that's going to have for our future? I, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, we're experiencing some flooding right now in Connecticut, and we're we're seeing more extremes with respect to our weather events. And so we're seeing, for example, last the last couple of summers we had long periods of drought that impacted our crops, our farms, um, our economy, uh, certainly water access and water um, quality were impacted. Um, And conversely, as you pointed out, we're also seeing flooding now. Um, So these extreme events not only cause acute uh, impacts in terms of fear, impacting our water quality, impacting our water quantity when we have long periods of drought, um, that impacts our drinking water. Um, and then just the acute impacts of a storm that may impact your home or your, you know, your community where you live. Certainly, we're seeing a lot of impacts for our Hartford residents in the North End who have experienced really catastrophic um, sewage overflows from flooding um, that has completely displaced many of those residents. So, Um, We need to begin to recognize that all of these weather impacts um, are also health impacts and really treat this as the public health emergency that it is and act with urgency to come up with the solutions. And and I think like most things, these are so interconnected. You can't really mm-hmm. take one out and and not talk talk about the other. And of, of course, heat is on my, our mind since it's summer. We're also seeing more extreme heat days here in Connecticut, especially recently. We've recorded some of the hottest summer days already, and we're you know we're midway through July. Uh, how are we preparing for high heat days? Especially thinking about the fact that you know not everyone has access to air conditioning, or if you're not familiar with the high heat, a, a lot of residents might not know how to prepare for it. That's exactly right. And again, I I have to thank you and WNPR for highlighting this issue here today, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily connect the dots of how extreme heat really impacts our health. And I really worry about, um, again, children, the elderly, people with other um, comorbidities, Um, people that don't have air conditioning, um, outdoor workers. I really worry about workers that are outside in this heat all day, unprotected. And so we need to be very conscious about knowing where our cooling centers are, knowing that um, how much we have to stay hydrated, even when we may not feel thirsty, Um, all of those kinds of things. Where can we go in our community for um, just 
you know, to cool down, to charge our phones if we need it for an emergency. But also programs like this help people understand and be able to take more actions to protect ourselves. And I think that's really important. We can't um, just rely on our hospital emergency rooms to be the, the care centers for all of us. They're already overburdened and crowded um, and have to be prepared for the real emergencies that, that come in day in and day out. So it's really important for all of us to be educated, know where our community centers are, know if there are libraries in town or our churches offer services, things like that. And does this change when you look at cities versus suburban areas, especially some places have more services versus others? And and do you think there are locations that are more prone to health hazards when, you know, talking about cities versus suburban as well? Yes, 100 percent, Catherine. We know that our cities um, have urban heat island effects. Um, so Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, um, many of these areas and communities within these cities lack trees, have a higher proportion of paved um, and black roofs, pavement on the roads, paved parking lots, black roofs. Um, all of that contributes to um, higher temperatures in the city. And people um, oftentimes in those communities may be of lower income, um, people of color in, you know, um, distressed communities that lack access to these services that significantly um, can help them during these extreme heat days. So we need to be thinking about holistic solutions in the state um, and prioritize, frankly, equitable solutions and equity so that we are assuring that these residents that are the most vulnerable are um, have the supports that they need. And we need to be doing things like urban tree planting and all of those things that will help reduce the urban heat island effect that we are currently experiencing. And I think with what you're saying too, we certainly see a need for updates to our infrastructure. Much of Connecticut housing you know, doesn't come with central air for good reason, because historically the weather has not been this extreme. But with what you're saying, and of course, it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario, but what needs to be done in terms of being able to provide more infrastructure for residents in need? Yeah, as you know, as you said a moment ago, this is all so interconnected. So um, the health impacts of climate change um, are enhanced or exacerbated by things like poor infrastructure, homes that aren't efficiently insulated, um, homes that lack air conditioning, buildings that may not be um, insulated well enough and not cooling enough for workers. Uh, so we need to be thinking about all of this in terms of housing, in terms of community environment. So things like energy efficiency services, um, ramping up energy efficiency, in homes and in buildings is a critical um, initiative that uh, needs to happen urgently. Uh, this is an area that my organization also works on. Um, 
by insulating homes and making them more efficient, it helps make the home more comfortable and helps impact, you know, improve health, frankly, of those residents. Secondly, we need to be thinking about more tree planting, as I said, and more green infrastructure in, um, in our communities, not just in the suburbs, but particularly in our cities where um, these resources are lacking. So things like you know, protecting ponds and rivers and streams and um, reducing stormwater runoff by um, green infrastructure, as well as making homes more efficient and buildings more efficient uh, will not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions, frankly, but also protect residents that are living in these communities across the state. And we've also been talking a lot about the health effects of climate change, but it also seems like some of the climate change can also cause different illnesses. So, you know, can you explain this to our listeners? Is climate change actually causing sort of like health side effects or worsening them? I definitely think it's worsening them. And, um, you know, certainly um, the other two physicians on this panel can speak to this as well. But I think it's hard to make a causative argument. Um, oftentimes, even sophisticated um, healthcare professionals may not necessarily connect that my um, heart arrhythmia, my my um, irregular heartbeat, and my high blood pressure um, is related to that I'm you know beginning to suffer heat exhaustion or dehydration. Um, they're just going to treat me and treat me very well and get me back out, you know, to my home. Um, but I think it's really important that we're considering this and considering that climate change is certainly exacerbating um, all of these health impacts. So it's exacerbating respiratory conditions. It's exacerbating cardiac conditions. It's, it's exacerbating mental health uh, conditions. And all of these both acute and chronically. Um, so it's certainly something that is uh, widespread and broad. And um, that's, again, that's why I think it's so important that we're talking about these issues so that not only people can better arm themselves and be better prepared, but um, that, frankly, us as healthcare professionals can be um connecting those dots and also advocating for policies that urgently uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and protect residents. And this is going to be an area that we'll be digging in deeper in a little bit. But I also want to ask for your perspective, too, in terms of do you think we are expecting to see more like vector-borne infections like Lyme disease? Or what about more conditions like malaria with, with a changing climate? Are these things that we will be seeing more, you think? I do think so. Um, and I, I'm not a vector specialist, mm -hmm. but I certainly keep in touch with those that are and read the research that indicates quite strongly through modeling and projections that because our climate is warming here in the Northeast and, and throughout the country, um, we fully expect that vectors will continue to expand and migrate North. For example, um, we know that in just a very short four or five years, 
um, ticks that carried Lyme disease have moved up from Connecticut all the way up into northern Maine and out more out west to the Ohio Valley and, and beyond. Um, and we know this, as you pointed out, with other vectors as well. As the climate warms, um, they're, um, they're cold-blooded. Uh, they survive in these um, temperatures. And because we're seeing less frost in the winter, they're not dying off. So I do think that we can expect to see more vector-borne diseases. And, and even ones, as you said, that we have not seen um ever in this part of the country. Right. And and as I feel like as we're seeing this more too, you know, speaking of interconnectedness, uh, we are, we also need to talk about cost. So, you know, according to the World Health Organization, the direct damage cost to health from various climate change conditions is actually estimated to be about between two to four billion dollars per year by 2030. That seems like a lot of billions for for something like this. So, Anne, can you talk about the increased cost that we can expect to see, and when do you think we might be seeing that, or are we already seeing that cost? I'm sure we are already seeing it, um, and I do know from from a lot of studies that it is projected to increase. And, and unfortunately, um, Catherine, probably the um, billions that you just outlined is probably an underestimate. Um, and again, I think it's hard to measure. We, you know, we have not always measured um, when people go into the ER, for example, with heat stroke or, a, you know, a cardiac event, we may not put it on their chart or code it as such so that we recognize it as related to climate change. I think that's changing. Um, I think it needs to change more so that we're really capturing those costs. But we need to be um, very much aware that um, healthcare costs in our country are, you know, extremely high already. And with people suffering these increased um, events from climate change, from extreme heat, from respiratory problems, poor air quality and the like, um, it's only um, logical that we'll see increased costs. And I think that's going to put a real burden on our economies. Um, that's lost school days. That's lost work days with parents staying home from work because of their kids aren't um, able to go to school. You know, that's longer periods of time of people out of work. Um, so I think it's going to have economic impacts and uh, individual impacts that are um, extraordinary, frankly. So the more, again, that we can be aggressively and urgently implementing the solutions, we have the solutions, we know what to do. Um, I think the more that we can ramp up implementing those solutions and, again, prioritizing equitable solutions is really key to not only lowering costs, improving health, and sustaining our economy. 
And we're hearing from Anne Hulick, who's the Connecticut Director for the Clean Water Action and Clean Water Fund. And we've been uh, hearing about how climate change is impacting our health, and she'll be staying with us. And coming up next, State Senator Sawu Anwar joins us to talk about what Connecticut is doing to become more climate resilient. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're continuing our exploration on how climate change is affecting our health. Each community here in Connecticut is being impacted in unique ways. And here to talk about how our state is doing overall is State Senator Saud Anwar, who represents the third state Senate district towns of East Hartford, East Windsor, Ellington, and South Windsor. He's also a medical doctor with specializations in treating lung diseases and critical care medicine, occupational and environmental medicine. Uh, Senator Anwar, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. So you're wearing many hats today, but uh, focusing on the medical aspect today, I think, and you've been listening to what we've been uh, talking about with uh, Anne so far. So I wanted to ask you to respond to what you've, what you've been hearing. You know, were there points that jumped out to you? Absolutely. So uh, first, I agree with uh, uh, all the things that Anne has said. And I will uh, add to that because as a lung doctor, I am seeing the impact. Um, if you re- recall in the last uh, week or so when we have had uh, increase in the particulate matter, as well as uh, the the impact of the, the smoke coming from Canada, we have seen increase in the number of uh, patients with exacerbations of the asthma and, and emphysema COPD. We know from data that uh, there's a very strong correlation as the particulate matter increases in the environment, the number of individuals with cardiac and pulmonary diseases or lung diseases, they end up going more likely to go to the hospital and more likely to be admitted and more likely to die. And that correlation has been well recognized for decades. And we are seeing that pattern play out um, year after year in our state as well. And as you are seeing it live, really, um, with with your work, both as as a policymaker and as a doctor, you know, how has 
the state of Connecticut taken action to reduce climate change impacts, especially since this this sounds like it's going to be ongoing? Yes, um, uh, I, I'm proud to say that uh, the state of Connecticut, uh, we are uh, making this one of our priorities. Uh, I want to share a few of the things that we have been involved in, uh, one of them being uh, the Senate Bill 4, uh, which was a priority bill back in 2022, where um, this bill uh, was the Connecticut uh, Clean Air Act. Um, it's a very comprehensive uh, law that we have passed. It does look at uh, uh, primary a bigger focus on the transportation uh, because that is a, a large part of the impact on our environment. And then having a, a strategy in place so that uh, in the coming years, we would uh, move towards uh, our school buses with uh, zero emission. Uh, we are looking also at the heavy uh, trucks and, and transportation to have emission standards. Uh, and those emission standards uh, um, are necessary because uh, they are one of the biggest polluters uh, for particulate matter in our state. So having uh, not only the state fleet, but also the various trucks uh, moving uh, similar to uh, the pattern that we have had in California with the emission standards. So we are hoping um, that uh, that is going to have a big impact going forward. We are transitioning in that direction. Um, that's just one bill, and I can speak to some of the other things that we are doing as well. And we we spoke about um, uh, environmental injustice earlier a little bit, you know, and kind of highlighted some of the inequities that climate change you know spotlights, uh, especially when things like flooding or when wildfires happen. So, can you explain to our listeners what environmental injustice looks like? Absolutely, and and I'll, I'll also share one of the bills that we have worked on, but. Um, Connecticut is one of the states where, unfortunately, our zip code decides how long one is going to live. It is uh, uh, very sad to see that uh, a five-minute drive from one part of our state to the other will change the lifespan from 10 to 20 years duration. So in other words, individuals in some parts of our state will live 10 years less than the others. And there are a number of reasons for that, but one of them is the unfortunate reality that uh, the individuals in some parts of our state, uh, let's take uh, north part of Hartford, uh, for example, um, they would live less, uh, th their lifespan is less uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that the air that the people are inhaling in the region, in that area, in the outside, but also inside of their homes is unsafe. Um, you have people with respiratory illnesses, asthma, because of the older buildings and also the, the mold, the dust mite in the inside of the home. And as soon as they come out, the particulate matter with the very small microns, which are inhalable, and those individuals continue to inhale that uh, 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 chemicals and, and dusts, which result in uh, not only immediate, but long-term impact on their well-being. We're seeing these patterns and, and uh, it is not a sustainable model for any community and we have to have interventions. Well, and that actually leads to my next question, because we also talked about in, in different cities here in the state, we have also seen a lot of cooling centers being put in place and, and vice versa. You got warming centers for extreme weather on the other end. But what needs to be done to go beyond just bringing these centers to actually prepare our communities for these extreme weathers? Yes. Um, uh, Catherine, what I would say is that um, these cooling centers are a necessity. We need to have easy access, but they are also 
trying to put a band-aid to the bigger picture, the bigger trends that we are seeing. We cannot uh, run away from the reality of why this is happening, and we will have to have interventions to prevent that from happening. But uh, it's very clear that the number of uh, cooling centers, the number of safe spaces in some parts of our state are not enough. So we have to have that intervention because uh, think of this, that uh, there is a bigger problem uh, around the corner, but let's take care of what we have immediately right now so that enough people can be in safer environment during these extreme uh, weather situations where the temperatures are high, but the particulate matter is high, the ozone levels are high. We take care of those individuals immediately by having the right number of safe spaces. That's one part. The second part is that we have to go back to the drawing board and say, hey, what are we doing to prevent this from happening, more so in some communities than the others, but we need to have interventions. And I think one of the bills that we worked on uh, during this session was Senate Bill 1147, which thankfully has passed and it is a law, which is about environmental justice programs uh, that we need to make sure that uh, our Department of Energy and Environmental Protection is heavily and directly involved, making sure that uh, some of our communities have a say in what is going to happen in their homes, in their backyards. And you mentioned different zip codes really can determine how you live, right? And we also talked about the recent floodings earlier. And so much of Connecticut is coastal. So how do we better prepare our coastlines for these extreme weather events? Um, That's uh, the resiliency that we will require because... uh, Uh, Unfortunately, the trends that we are seeing, these coastlines are going to be uh, impacted. We have seen some of the hurricanes and also uh, the gradual increase at at the level of uh, the the ocean, and that's going to impact the entire region. Uh, We are also seeing the pattern where the home values are being impacted. The cost of insurance is going up. So those resiliencies will require building protections, but also being a a a very important part of preventing the changes in climate that we have to be intervening about and working on. And of course, we can't talk about this without talking about the recent smoke from the wildfires in Canada, which you've mentioned earlier as well. And it reminded us that these events could become more common. And I think most people, although we know to stay cool, stay hydrated in extreme heat days, uh, what should people know about being outside on low air quality days? air quality days. Is it safe to be outside? Is it safe to exercise? I mean, I was seeing people jogging during those really, really intense smoky days. And I was thinking, oh, maybe that's not a good idea. What What are your thoughts? Yes, Catherine, I had the same uh, concern. And, and and thankfully, we're reaching out to the people. What, what happens is that uh, the wildfires, uh, again, particulate matter is not good in the environment, but the fires related particulate matter includes the very small 2.5 micron size particulate matter, which is inhalable, which uh, causes exacerbations. It is well known that as soon as a person would inhale that, uh, their asthma is going to get exacerbated. The chances of them going to uh, the emergency room and getting admitted is up to 30% higher. And then and similar with COPD, emphysema, individuals with cardiac disease as well. So those are the vulnerable people, including the children and the seniors. But More importantly, every single person at that time for a short-term and long-term protection of themselves should exercise indoors if the indoor environment can be better controlled, if you have filtration, if you have air conditioning. Uh, But if you, when we are outdoor and when we are exercising, we obviously, because of the exercise, we increase our respiratory rate. We increase the size of our breaths. That's called tidal volume, longer, deeper breaths. 
that results in more exposure. So the better, smarter thing is to do it indoors during those days and keep track of the the air quality index in, in our state. Well, I'm happy to hear that we were on the same page on that. So appreciate you uh, uh, clarifying that for all of us. And I also want to ask um, our state attorney general, William Tong, has also filed a lawsuit against ExxonMobil. So what can you tell us about that case and how Connecticut is working to hold uh, fossil fuel companies accountable for the health impacts of climate change? Yeah, thank you for that question, Catherine. Uh, so proud of our attorney general, Tong, uh, back in November of 2020. Um, ExxonMobil, uh, Connecticut became a part of a lawsuit against ExxonMobil. Here's what uh, was going on. Back in the 50s, there was data that was available showing the, the impact on the climate from the work ExxonMobil had been doing. And later ExxonMobil uh, had their own studies that they had initiated. These studies uh, gave them results, uh, which we all know is that the work that ExxonMobil has been doing is causing uh, impact on the climate. Now, instead of be- going public with it and, and becoming a responsible uh, uh, corporation, they actually, uh, during for decades, they had deception and they continued to do the work. They continued to pollute the environment. They can continue to pollute uh, everything um, th- that is going to have a negative impact on the well-being of the citizens of our state and, the, and our country and the world. Um, and uh, thankfully, uh, as our Attorney General William Tong has sued them, and and ex- we expect them to pay for all the damage that they have done. Um, and I'll actually just add one more thing, uh, which is I think critical is that if you look at what has happened with the opioid uh, settlement, uh, the opioid settlement fund is going to be used to prevent more opioid-related deaths and the impact. And I feel um, and I know because it's such a clear-cut case that I believe that we are going to win as a state of Connecticut, and there will be a settlement fund, and I hope that we can use the settlement fund to make sure that our communities with environmental justice um, has not been fair to them, and and we need to make sure that we start to invest in those communities to have the protection of the people living there right now, but also in future, Um, because uh, this is going to be our opportunity to get the funds to undo the wrong that has been done. And just a quick note for our listeners that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. And we're now going to take a quick call from Susan from Hartford, who is on the Governor's Council on Climate Change. Susan. Hi, good morning. Um, Yeah, just to clarify, I was the co-chair of the Science and Technology Working Group for the Phase 1 report, and I'm so interested in this conversation. Um, with the great guests, including, including Ann Hulick, who was on the um, very, very interdisciplinary team that we put together. And I just want to um, mention two things that I think are so fundamental in solving any of our problems. As a neuroscientist, of course, if our brains aren't healthy and our mental health isn't good, we can't make good decisions. And we know we all rely on these natural systems. And um, I think there are some opportunities to really do some co-solving of these problems by making um, strategic decisions about using our natural system to protect our water. Um, These natural areas provide free cooling centers in case the power goes out. They are tremendous at cleaning the air and helping to protect us from air pollution, and they also provide enormous benefits 
for our mental health. And um, in our report, we talked about a number of really free solutions that could be uh, manifested in rural and suburban and urban communities, which all have different kind of needs and pre-existing kind of baselines. And um, I hope we can kind of think about uh, really making some visionary changes that can protect our community lifelines going forward, because I think that will help our health, help our mental health, and help our kids to know that we're really doing the best we can for them. Um, And one of the uh, international reports that we referenced is that helping children and vulnerable people helps everyone and um, is the most economically beneficial, et cetera. So I'm really excited that we're talking about this. And I think Connecticut has so many opportunities. And I want to thank Senator Anwar for also leading the um, mental health uh, bill um, that I testified on. So thank you again for having this show. And I hope there'll be some follow-up conversations on, you know, common sense solutions. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for your call. Appreciate all of your comments. And this is certainly an ongoing conversation that we'll be having. I would love to have uh, Anne Hulick back real quick to respond to what Susan has to say. Oh, thank you. I think um, Susan is exactly right. Um, we have the solutions. Um, we have learned so much um, from researchers in many other fields, um, including hers, about how natural systems help us improve our health. Um, so things like, you know, and I wasn't taught this. I'm I'm a nurse by background. I worked in nursing for over 20 years, and I'm still involved in Uh, nursing, but we weren't taught, frankly, about how natural systems um, impact our health by significant things like reducing blood pressure, reducing stress, um, helping us to cool down, um, all of those kinds of things. So it really is um, significantly important to think about these natural solutions and how they can help residents in our communities. So kind of as Dr. Anwar, Senator, and Dr. Anwar said, um, having a few cooling centers is needed, but it's like a Band-Aid for a much larger public health crisis. And I think the fact that we're learning so much about how natural systems like tree coverage and green infrastructure and um, all of those kinds of things can really have an impact on our health should be something that we um, ramp up and implement. And I I liked Susan's word of really visionary. I think it's um, really important that we use visionary and creative solutions quickly um, in, in combination with all of the other high-tech things that need to be done. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for responding. Appreciate it. You've been hearing from Anne Hulick, who's the Connecticut Director of the Clean Water Action and Clean Water Fund. And you've also been listening to Senator Dr. Saul Anwar, uh, who joined us today to talk about climate change. Thank you for joining us today as well. And next up, climate change is not only affecting our physical health, but our mental health as well. We'll learn more about how extreme weather can exacerbate that stress.
And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've been talking about how climate change affects our physical health. And not just that, new research is showing that climate change also plays a role in our mental health as well. Many young people struggle with eco-anxiety or climate anxiety, and this is broadly defined as negative cognitive, emotional, and behavioral responses that are associated with concerns about climate change, and this is according to the Journal of Current Psychology. But as we learn to cope with the effects of climate change, some mental health conditions could also be made worse. And joining us now to help us understand all of that better is Dr. Joshua Wolzel. He's a chair of the American Psychiatric Association's Committee on Climate Change and Mental Health. And he also serves on the national nonprofit Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Thank you so much, Dr. Wolzel, for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you've been listening to the conversation. There's been a lot going on. We're talking so many you know, health impacts from climate change. But how does it impact our mental health? Sure. I think that it's perhaps helpful to group the impacts of climate change and mental health into three categories. There are the direct impacts uh, of heat on the brain. We know that uh, there are associations, strong association studies that have been done looking at the prevalence of suicide and violence, as well as worsening of a number of different psychiatric conditions like mania and bipolar disorder, PTSD, that um, occur during heat waves as well as well as warmer times during the year. Um, and our understanding of the biology is still in its infancy, but we think that it may have to do with what heat does to different chemicals in the brain like serotonin. There are indirect effects, and some of them we've even touched on already, uh, including how vector-borne illnesses, which have uh, psychiatric effects, um, are changing in their regional distribution due to climate change. But even things like crops that are grown in different concentrations of carbon dioxide have different uh, and reduced nutritional content, which can affect the brain. Or pollution can affect um, dementia and other neurodevelopmental disorders. So there are indirect effects as well. And then finally, what you mentioned, the psychological impacts of climate change include um, the climate distress is, um, or similar to climate anxiety, but climate distress is perhaps a slightly more inclusive term of all of the emotional responses to people worrying about what's happening with the environment. And then also the trauma of what happens when a community is faced with natural disasters that are occurring in greater frequency and intensity due to climate change. Well, I know you mentioned that this is very much sort of a study in its infancy, but we're definitely seeing how heat impacts us physically. You know, it can be exhausting. Uh, I think you can your, your your patient levels are probably down because you're exhausted and hot at the same time. So, how does that combination, you know, together impact mental health? I think that there are again our understanding of exactly how heat impacts mental health is hard to disentangle if, if whether it's, you know, different serotonin levels in the brain can lead to, you know, a reduction in our ability to um, 
perhaps deal with our aggression, but also heat gets us out, you know, in different environments that we might not otherwise be. We're out on, you know, the sidewalk and perhaps getting into altercations with other people just by virtue of proximity. It's interesting when we look at the rate of violence in particular, we know that for every 1.8 degrees Celsius change, there's a 6% increase in violence um, and violent crimes across the board. And um, we know that certain environments are perhaps even more affected. So we know in prisons, actually, that can increase to 18 to 20% uh, increased violence when there's extreme heat uh, or areas where there are perhaps, you know, more, um, you know, violent crimes to begin with. And can you explain to our listeners what eco-anxiety or climate anxieties uh, are and how are psychologists preparing for for these anxieties? So climate distress or climate anxiety is the collection of emotional um, responses, and that can be anxiety, it could be anger, depression, guilt, um, to what's currently happening to our environment secondary to climate change. Um, I think it's important to stress that this is not like a clinical diagnosis. Um, We're not trying to pathologize people having distress about climate. Um, What we are trying to say, though, is that um, this is something that many people are experiencing. We know that among uh, the general population in America, 70% of people say that they are at least moderately worried about climate change. Among children, that actually goes as high as 85%. And um, actually, among young people, we know that uh, their distress about climate change is affecting their daily life and functioning and among like 45% of young people. So this is this is an entity that has real impacts on, on people's well-being. And I think it's also worth saying that we're still trying to figure out if climate distress also can have clinical symptoms. So some of my research actually is looking at how climate distress may impact depression, suicide, and anxiety, clinical anxiety in youth. And and of course, there's so much to this, and it's so complicated, and everything is so connected. So how would you suggest you know parents and educators find the balance of teaching children about climate change and, and preparing them without sort of adding to the stress that they are already feeling? That's a great question. We've been starting to develop evidence-based means of holding what we call the quote-unquote climate talk, which is how to address climate change with young people. And um, for listeners who are interested, there's a book that the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry created, which is a a think tank within psychiatry. Um, And this book is called Coco's Fire, Changing Climate Anxiety into Climate Action, to try to give guidance for caregivers on how to have this conversation. But some of the key elements include um, helping a child sit with the emotion and not poo-pooing it. Um, I think that we need to validate what children are experiencing. We need to assess what they know. A lot of children only know piecemeal pieces of what's going on with climate. And so in an age-appropriate manner, giving them education about what climate change really is. We need to help children know that they're not alone. An unfortunate message that is sometimes propagated among adults is, oh, our generations mess things up. It's up to children to fix things. You're our hope. And that is in some ways empowering, but it also can be very anxiety provoking for children. So as adults, we need to do more to show youth what we are doing as adults to address this problem. And 
also inviting them to engage in activism. And there's various groups that are, are doing that. Um, establishing a sense of wonder in the natural world can be therapeutic. Um, so yeah, I could go on, but you know, there are different methods to having this conversation with young people. Right. And, and I love the idea of, you know, it's both inspiring and empowering, but I cannot imagine having that burden on my shoulders as a, as a young, young person. So I appreciate that thought. And, um, with everything that's going on too, you know, how do you think climate change is impacting our choices, such as when we're thinking about buying a house or or raising children, for that matter? I think what we're seeing in the country right now um, are a lot of people's psychological defenses. So what do I mean by that? We all have ways of trying to cope with stress. And I think some people are uh, grasping tightly onto denial. Some people are projecting their feelings of distress onto, um, you know, different minority groups or, um, you know, immigrants or you know, trying to sidestep perhaps some of the inherent um, difficulties that they're facing through climate change by putting it onto something else. And I think that, um, you know, we're all trying to figure out ways of coping. I would encourage, you know, one of the first ways we can try to help children with climate distress is really tackling our own. And there are different groups that have been created to support adults with that. Um, I would invite people to look at the uh, organization Climate Psychology Alliance, as well as my own that I'm a part of, the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, their resources for adults. Um, in the Climate Psychology Alliance, there's a list of climate-aware therapists who can help with um, people processing their climate distress. There's uh, groups called Climate Cafes, which are more or less group opportunities for people to discuss these things. You've been listening to Dr. Josh Warzel. He's the chair of the American Psychiatric Association's Committee on Climate Change and Mental Health, and he also serves on the steering committee for the national nonprofit Climate Psychiatry Alliance. Thank you so much, Josh, for being with us today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.